0: Labor to Grow Wages as Big Business Wines Ukraine Update and Propaganda in Your Timeline And the Good News is Rewiring Australia This is The Week on Wednesday Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday I am your co-host Ben Davison and I am joined by the best-selling author of QAnon and On Guardian columnist extraordinaire my wife, your friend and co-host of the week on Wednesday live, which we did last week at the Melbourne Fringe.
1: Oh my God, it was amazing.
0: Van Battam, how are you, Van?
1: You know, I'm missing you because I'm back in Sydney.
0: Yeah, I know. I miss you too. We had
1: an amazing time at Melbourne Fringe and we want to thank everyone who joined the audience. It had such a beautiful vibe. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, you should because we got laughs.
0: Yeah, apparently we're quite funny uh, and people enjoy listening to us for, for the yaks, the yuck, yak yuck, yaks.
1: Oh, for the yaks. <laughs> I love it. It was so nice and it was really great hanging out in the bar afterwards and I just want to acknowledge everybody who brought their books to get signed and also someone gave us some Star Wars cards.
0: Yeah, that was awesome.
1: That was awesome because Ben and I are big nerds and we got asked to sign a uh, Somebody's copy of an Asimov Foundation novel, which was just kind of peak us, really.
0: Yeah, it was good times. And this, of course, Van, is our 200th recording. It's the 110th episode of the week on Wednesday. And when you add up all the week on Wednesdays and the live shows and the weekend wraps that we've done, it is the 200th recording uh, that we're putting out into the world, which, you know, I just, if you'd said to me, we're going to do 200 episodes, and have nearly what have we got now? Nearly seven hundred thousand downloads. I, when we started this, I'd have gone, yeah, right. No one's gonna, no one's going to listen to us for that long. Yeah,
1: it's completely incredible. Two hundred episodes, and the show is made possible because of the generous contributions of our fans uh, who fund us to advertise the show and build the audience. We always get growth, which is super exciting, and we absolutely love doing this. Ben and I just can't think of anything more fun than to nerd out about macroeconomic policy once or twice a week.
0: Speaking of which, there has been some very interesting, well, I think it's interesting and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you will find it interesting too, uh, developments around wages and macroeconomic policy today.
1: Oh, remember how Paul Keating said, if you change to the Prime Minister, you change the country? How true oh, yeah. that is.
0: Well, absolutely, because the Albanese government has today announced plans to introduce its new workplace relations laws into parliament next week, hoping to pass it by the end of the year. Now, this is this is a huge step. Of course, during the election, there was lots of discussion about stagnant wage growth. Of course, we've seen wages go backwards. Uh, but this new bill, we'll do a couple of things that are really quite fundamental to setting the framework for improving wages. The first, and this is the one that uh, the Albanese Labor Government is stressing a lot, is removing the pay secrecy clauses from employment contracts.
1: Ben, tell us about the pay secrecy clauses.
0: Well, the pay secrecy clause basically prevents people from talking about their wages with other people, so you have two people doing the same job in in the same office, or in the same factory, or in the same warehouse, in the same yard, in the same site, wherever it might be, but getting paid different amounts. But because of pay secrecy laws, they're not allowed to talk about it.
1: That sounds anti-democratic.
0: Yeah, it really does, and it's really it
1: really sounds anti-democratic.
0: And it's people say, and quite rightly, that it's one of the drivers and one of the problems uh, with the gender pay gap is that people can't talk about whether or not they're being paid the same. So they're not actually able to compare wages. They're not able to go, hang on, this isn't fair. They're not able to support each other in lifting their salaries. So it is a really positive move. It's a particularly positive move, I think, for women, for younger workers, for people returning to the workforce as well. But of course, this isn't the only thing that's going to happen in this legislation. So there's going to be two new, uh, commis- two new panels of the Fair Work Commission, one focused on care in the community sector and one on pay equity. Again, that gender equity issue is being brought front and centre and being made an actual purpose of the law is to achieve uh, pay equity, which is a significant step in the right direction. And also with the care and community sector, having a real focus means that that sector, which has been essentially government funded, really, when you think about it, but has been left to free marketeers to plunder and, and exploit, as we've seen increasingly, we've seen the gig economy move into the NDIS, into aged care, and people really struggling to, to find really to to find quality, secure employment and decent wages. So there's going to be an absolute focus on that. But the big thing that's really got big business in a twist today, Van, is, of course, multi-employer bargaining, which, as regular listeners to this show will know, is where workers across different employers can come together and bargain in their interest People go, oh, but you know, how is that going to work? And you've got people in different places. Well, let's be really clear about what's happening now because what happens now is that you have businesses like Qantas splitting workforces up into different entities, creating different entities, outsourcing entities, using labor hire, using what are effectively sham contracts so that you've got smaller and smaller groups of workers with less and less power to negotiate, and then trying to negotiate what are called enterprise agreements with these small groups of workers. What multi-employer bargaining says, essentially says is actually the workers across entities should be able to come together, decide we want to collectively bargain across these entities and lift our wages because we have things in common. The work we do, the, the kind of industry we're in, uh, the kind of skills that we need. There is a commonality to these things and, and we should bargain together.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you hear the phrase ticket clippers thrown around a lot. And obviously your hero and mine, the great Josh Bornstein of Morris Blackburn has written lots of really great articles about and commentary about ticket clipping in the economy. And what we mean by ticket clipping is people whose function in the economy isn't really to be productive or to really do anything apart from exist to and get paid to exploit workers. Really, there's a lot of that that goes on. And if you look particularly at outsourcing, and the kind of sham contracting that goes on with employment, that's really where you see this ticket clipping happen because Qantas, in order to keep wages down, artificially down, Pays they pay they budget in that it will be less for them to outsource because they'll be able to split up their workforce as you were saying and uh, handle and and offer contracts to sort of labor hire companies or companies that just sort of pop out of nowhere. What an amazing coincidence, Ben! That seems to happen a lot of time that all of a sudden a major corporation decide that they don't want. Uh, you know a unified powerful workforce engaging with them as equals and then these these companies suddenly appear in order to run an outsource staffing operation i mean it's i mean it's just Incredible coincidence. And that- in fact,
0: fan, in some cases, the outsourced company is owned by the parent company.
1: Ben, no, <laughs> surely not.
0: Yeah, this is this is quite common, particularly in mining, for example, where you'll have a labor hire company that is owned by the parent company. So two workers doing the same work in the same place using the same skill set one employed by the parent company, one employed by the wholly owned subsidiary, on different rates of pay.
1: Like how is this legal? <laughs> Legitimately, How on earth is this legal?
0: It is It is really remarkable. and and look, we should say, you know that the the business lobby has pushed back against this. They say this is uncalled for, and it's called them all by surprise, and it's at best half cooked. And I just keep going back to we've had an election where this was front and centre. We've had a jobs and skills summit where this was one of the outcomes. We've had ALP policy, policy and platform for years where this has been in it. And let's be really clear, the the current labour settings do not work. Unemployment is 3.5%. We have a record number of Australians working multiple jobs Inflation is six point one. Do
1: we have nine hundred thousand Australians working multiple jobs?
0: Yeah, nine hundred thousand Australians working multiple jobs, but wages have gone backwards three percent. You know, the the kind of economic model that neoliberalism sold us—that these big business lobbyists say we just have to let, you know, play out—does not work because the power imbalance. There is a power imbalance in. The workforce when companies can do the kinds of things we've been talking about. You know, we, we see it in every sector now. You know, Tony Burke, who's the industrial relations minister, described that the cancer of the gig economy extending into the care economy, into aged care in the NDIS. You know, we've seen New South Wales Labour. Say that if they win the state election in March, they will reform the gig economy.
1: Oh, and they're gonna ban privatization as well, which is the, amazing. These it's, are important. It's just absolutely wonderful. Can can we just take a moment, Ben, to observe how absolutely wonderful it is to see the to see Labour parties, because it's not just happening in Australia, it's happening all over the world. Labor parties who went along with the economic orthodoxy of the time in the 70s and 80s and 90s and went, oh, you know, this neoliberalism thing, the economists, the Pulitzer Prize winning economists like Milton Friedman, not Pulitzer, Nobel, sorry, Nobel Prize winning economists like Milton Friedman. They're telling us that this is the way that prosperity will be delivered and we should privatize and let the market do its thing and all this stuff, it is just wonderful to watch a generation of Labor politicians put down the Kool-Aid and go, actually, this is nonsense. We listened to the experts. We did as we were advised by all of our treasuries who listened to Nobel Prize-winning economists like Milton Friedman and it is bunk, bunk, absolutely bunk. It does not work.
0: And it is absolutely the point that people are making, you know, that actually this was the experiment. Enterprise bargaining was an experiment that was started 30 years ago, and frankly, it's not working. And and look, the ACTU, Australian unions, have been front and centre on this, talking about how if we've got record low unemployment and we've got wage cuts, the system is broken, right? And it is fundamentally broken. And, of course, we know there is a gender uh, there is a gender uh, gap in terms of pay, but also a, a gender split in our workforce. We know that in the caring sectors, in childcare, aged care, we you know in cleaning, these are predominantly feminized industries. We know that they are atomized industries. You know they are predominantly subcontracted. They are smaller and smaller groups of workers. Multi-employer bargaining will address that and give. Particularly women, more power in the workforce. And, you know, there's absolutely, you know, we've talked about it time and time again. Joining your union is so important. Whatever workforce you're in, whatever the size of the workforce or the workplace, being a union member delivers better wages and conditions. And you can join while you're listening to us on the podcast, while you're doing anything with uh, internet access, go to australianunions.org.au wow, that's W-O-W, because fundamentally, the union movement is pushing for these changes. And and the big business lobby has come out today and criticized the Labor government, saying, oh, this is all just what the unions want. Brennan O'Connor, who's the Minister for Skills, has said that this is a sort of breathless hysteria, this idea that Oh, there'll be mass strikes. And, you know, if you give multi-employer bargaining into the system, it'll it'll create this huge disruption. And it's just not real. Like fundamentally, multi-employer bargaining exists in many places around the world. And the reality is that it doesn't lead to mass strikes. No,
1: it leads to shared prosperity. I mean, that's that's yeah. the the thing that's so enraging about this defensive neoliberalism. You and I were talking before the program about the kind of the, the countries that have multi employer bargaining and the countries that don't.
0: Yeah, well, the country- so
1: let's talk about some of the countries that have multi employer bargaining. They are the Scandinavian countries and Germany. Uh, what are these countries, Ben? What are they collectively known as? Oh, the countries with the highest standard of living in the world. What are some countries that don't have multi-employer bargaining, Ben?
0: Well, the UK, for example.
1: <laughs> the UK, the country that voted itself into poverty. The end of empire that was self-elected. Well done, all of you. I can't think of a, a better revenge of the colonised of the world to watch Britain essentially decolonize itself. Like, well done, everybody. Th- that economy is not an- absolute basket case and everyone knows it. It is horrific to work. As somebody who's worked in the minimum wage economy in Britain, let me just tell you, it is Dickensian over there. What's another country that doesn't have multi-employer bargaining?
0: Well, the United States, although I will say this, even in the United States, in California, they have brought in a form of multi-employer bargaining in fast food because they have recognised that fast food is an important part of the Californian economy. That won't come as a surprise to anyone who's, you know, familiar with America. And actually, having a system where employers and employees can come together and set terms and conditions across the sector is in everyone's interest. And this is the point that uh, John Buchanan, who's a uh, uh, who's an expert, an Australian expert, makes when he, sort of this idea was put that, oh, well, you'll have strikes and you'll have all this stuff. I mean, the point that he makes is um, that it depends on the stance employers take. And he's right, absolutely right. Of course he's right. If the employer comes to the table in good faith and says, well, this this is what our sales look like. This is what we can invest in training and skills in capital production and in in machinery and equipment. Um, this is what we expect in sales. This is how much revenue we think we'll have. Uh, you know, this is what we're prepared to offer and bargain in good faith, then you've actually got a system that can deliver a fair share of what's produced to the workers and to the owners of capital. What and- we have now is a system Where effectively we have growing inflation because capital and companies are taking record profits out of the system. So we have record low unemployment, record low unemployment, wage cuts, growing inflation, and record profits. You've got to have a different system and a different approach if you want to get a different outcome.
1: Absolutely, and I I want to put this in a in a global context, just really briefly as well, and about why these employer employee standards, like minimum standards and and shared outcomes, are so important. There's been a big scandal this week, which shouldn't be which shouldn't be surprising to any listener of this show, frankly, or anyone who's got anything like an adult critique of the capitalist system. But the Independent, which is a newspaper in the UK, did an investigation into Shane, which is one of the Shane or Shane H S H E I N, which is one of the big fast fashion online retailers. It's one of the biggest in the world, and. Um, the workers at Shane uh, are paid 3p, which is about 5 Australian cents per item that they make. They work 18-hour days. They don't get weekends, and they only get one day off a month, and that's in their factories in China, and it's horrific to think – what that would be physically doing to the people who did that kind of work. But that's what exists in a worker exploitation system. But to put this in the context of about, well, you know, what's that got to do with Australia, there was a really good Twitter thread today from a user called @verymimi. And I'm just going to quote what they said because in the context of Shane and what we're talking about, the need for multi-employer bargaining, the need to stop wages going backwards and the need to get exploitation out of the system you know the this tweeter went. The reason clothes looked and performed better in the 60s and early 70s is because they were being made in more reasonable quantities by unionized workers who were being paid a living wage to construct them to human proportions, and not effectively slaves who were abused to meet production deadlines. No, your shame jumpsuit doesn't fit correctly and isn't going to last as long because a pregnant woman had to make 100 of 150 of them in the same day without a bathroom break for $3. Sustainability, liberation and fashion are all intrinsically connected and overconsumption is the enemy of all three. And I thought that's a really good point like there are outcomes to do with productivity in an exploitation system. And just like anyone can, anyone in the arts can tell you, anyone in design can tell you, if the process is bad, the product is bad. And if we're living in an economy where workers are exploited and they're underpaid and there are ticket clippers who are running the outsourcing operation all just, you know, a few extra grubby dollars for the, the you know, um, shareholders of a company. Mm you end up with worse outcomes and Qantas is the local example. Every single time I fly Qantas these days, which I have to do in order to get to my job and do my work Mm. and, you know, Qantas, they all think they're business geniuses because they do have an effective monopoly that people can't avoid in this country. There are massive inefficiencies and customer disservice that goes on because of the decisions they've made around, um, you know, outsourcing and their employment relationships and, you know, it's obvious that the system doesn't work as well. The United yeah. States, I mean, Australians are generally horrified when they encounter, you know, these famous icons of American department stores and, you know, various American services. It's it's not difficult to imagine yourself in Escape from L.A. if you have ever been to LAX airport, for example. It is it is like something from a post-apocalyptic movie and yet the apocalypse hasn't quite happened yet. Although, I mean, I hear a lot of people are working on it. Just those exploitation systems lead to denuded and degraded outcomes for all of us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in Australia, uh, Ethical Clothing Australia is a really uh, good Twitter account for people to follow. They do a lot of work around what the, uh, what is, ethical fashion in Australia that is Australian-made. And and your, your point's are a really good one, Van. We've seen just this week, again, the NDIS is uh, going to have a review. There's going to be NDIS 2.0 because we've seen that influx. You know, we've, we've seen how quality and safeguard standards are not being met or adhered to because... People are looking to make a quick buck. You know, it's not okay. Uh, there's, you know, there was a there was an expo- There was a report last night about uh, the the way that Medicare is being used. Now, I'm not going to get into all that today. But wherever there is a pressure to increase profit without actually increasing the resources available for workers to get the job done, you're going to have this decline in quality, or you're going to have exploitation, which in itself will then lead to a decline in quality. And and that's what we've seen, right? We've seen that across Australia, the de-skilling of Australian industry. We've seen the de-skilling of Australian workers uh, because- Businesses didn't want to invest. There was a government that didn't make them invest, the government that didn't invest itself.
1: Government mm. that didn't care. Yeah. The government who supported outsourcing and supply chains and strike breaking and tried to, you know, that was the the logical consequence of the Howard government, who were their ideological antecedents, who literally shipped in mercenary labour to try and break the mighty MUA on the wharves. Like
0: and of course, we know that when workers stand together, actually they can stand up against those things. And it can be a long, hard struggle. But the MUA won that dispute. We know even even now, public sector workers at the Commonwealth level uh, are, are having the conversation with Katie Gallagher. Katie Gallagher has announced that there will be less reliance on multinational consulting firms and an increase in. The capacity of the Australian public service. You know, these are important investments that are made into the capacity of our nation. Uh, we've seen just in Victoria in the last few days the, re- the response to the floods. Victoria has a very strong public sector that's able to respond and support local communities, who, so of course, there are lots of volunteers on the ground, there's lots of people locally doing lots of hard work, but there are professionals in place, in situ that are there with the developed skills to supplement and provide the framework for those things to happen.
1: And let's put this in context too. There's a large community of people, a very large community of people, who actually like and want to serve the rest of the community. And you can Absolutely. see that with how quickly Australians mobilise around – disasters and the floods and the number of people who've turned up like government should also exist to facilitate the greatest aspirations of the community that creates it and you know we see so many so many of our friends are public servants or working in uh, in public service as teachers as nurses you know in the hospital system you know people who work in emergency management and, you know people who work in community arts like it's a really meaningful and important human drive to serve other people yeah and the role of government should be to facilitate that and, and just- I think it's
0: i think it's a really interesting comparison to look at what's been happening in the Victorian floods with what happened in New South Wales, right, where you've had a Liberal government in New South Wales for a long time that has attacked its own workforce, continues to attack rail workers, hospital workers, uh, has cut back and cut back and cut back, and there are still communities that were flooded out at the start of the year that have not gotten the assistance they need to recover. Whereas in Victoria, you're not getting... Those kind of stories come through. Now, there's still a way to go in Victoria. Obviously, the floodwaters are still quite high, but it is a it is a clear comparison where you go, if you invest in the workforce, if you invest in the community, if you provide the skills, if you have the workforce there, then actually you can recover more quickly. And the long-term economic benefits are really like they're blatantly obvious. There, there's a the short-termism of business lobbyists who don't want multi-employer bargaining, of liberal politicians who don't want strong public sectors, it's all short-termism and ultimately people pay a high price and the price is one that we're paying now in terms of people working multiple jobs, low wages, cuts to wages, declining living standards. So we can reverse it, though. We can reverse it.
1: Yeah, we can. We can reverse it. And it's it's really exciting to watch the new government make decisions that are facilitating a different ethos in terms of the way that our country is run and the values it prioritises.
0: And, of course, it, I do find it interesting to watch the big business lobbyists whine about it when it's like, actually, you've been – far more in the room than, than the union movement was allowed in the room under the previous government or workers of any kind were allowed in the room. You know, Josh Frydenberg during the pandemic spoke to who? Harvey Norman, uh, Jerry Harvey and... Uh, uh, and Solomon Lou. That's how he was making decisions. It's a and lots of two. guys
1: from the gas industry.
0: Yeah, that's right. So
1: many gas industry guys. What an so, amazing coincidence. It's just full of coincidences, capitalism, but it's really a free market. Like really, the invisible <laughs> hand just touches what it wants.
0: The mythos of the free market. Oh, Look, it's hilarious. We should talk about Ukraine because there's been a lot going on over in Ukraine and, you know, when we talk about – Economic situation. One of the things conservatives in the English speaking world love to do is blame all of the problems that are going on on the war in Ukraine. And there's no question that, you know, Putin's war in Ukraine has had some impact in some areas on some types of supplies. But as we've discussed, those issues go much, much more deeply than just Putin's war. And also,
1: what a great reason to supply arms to Ukraine, to back in the Ukrainians and to repel the invasion. If you are worried about the economic damage to the global economy and our own you know, macroeconomic circumstances because of that war, get behind the Ukrainian cause.
0: And look, it's a cause that seems to be winning, Van.
1: Oh, absolutely. So the Ukrainians have been on the offensive uh, for more than a month now, have retaken enormous amounts of territory that was seized by the Russians uh, in the early days of the invasion. Uh, the Russians have resorted to firing missiles at the energy infrastructure of Ukraine. The pretty obvious strategy, because winter is coming in Ukraine, but also, should let's point it out, in Russia, uh, is that they're trying to literally freeze out the ukrainians by destroying their capacity to keep themselves warm
0: and it's somebody's pointed out that you know the they've changed generals the general who's been put in place the butcher of Syria the butcher of Syria uh you know is just indiscriminately shelling um, civilians and targets that are near energy facilities that there there is a significant number of civilian casualties uh, that have occurred, um, but also that Moscow's losing control. And in fact, that uh, some of the civilians in the city of Kurzon, uh, I believe it is, have been um, forcibly uh, relocated because the Russians are preparing to withdraw from from that city, because the Ukrainians are on the on the offensive,
1: it's very interesting. Because of course they have a puppet Russian puppet um, administrator in Kurzon. and you these are the the four territories that the. Uh, Russian or five territories. They insist that they own Crimea. They insist that they own Kurzon, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk. And you made the rather powerful observation. You know, we know that there were these sham referenda that were run in uh, Zaporizhia, Kurzon, Donetsk, and Luhansk saying, oh, yeah, no, 95% of the people who live here really want to live in Russia. Ben, what was your uh, rather brilliant piece of analysis involving the sporting allegiances of those particular parts of Ukraine.
0: Well, it just struck me that Shakhtar Donetsk plays uh, in the Ukrainian Super League, not in the Russian Premier League, uh, which seems to indicate to me that they're quite clearly part of Ukraine. Uh, it's not its not normal for countries to play in other countries' leagues. Uh and, you know, even the great debate in England over whether or not Celtic and Rangers should join the English Premier League, the Scottish uh, independence will not allow that to happen. So this concept that somehow or another these areas are part of Russia is really, uh, well, it's really, it's a propaganda exercise, Van, and I think that's really the point, isn't it? You know, Russia is really uh pushed the propaganda buttons really hard throughout the course of the war and in the lead-up to the war. uh, And
1: for the past 100 years, you know, at least. And this is a really important consideration is the information warfare aspect of what the Russians are doing because uh, I have become – um, unfortunately, given the work that I did researching my book QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, the work that I did
0: nominated for a Walkley, by the way.
1: Yes, it has been nominated for a Walkley. That is very exciting, I must say. Um, and on on the Russian theme, uh, I am I'm going to acknowledge that. My play, Adaptation of Animal Farm by George Orwell, which is obviously about uh, the transition from revolutionary to, uh, revo- revolution to authoritarianism in Russia in its original imprint, um, which I made about Trumpism and the Republican Party in, the, in America. That's been, uh, it's a finalist for an Augie, which is that the, they are the awards for playwrights. So I don't know if I'm the first person to be nominated for a, a, an Augie and a Walkley at the same time, and obviously everybody's very worthy and I, I am genuinely honoured to be nominated. But it's interesting. I think I'm mentioning this because let your children go to art school is <laughs> is generally the punchline. If they want to go, let them go. Um, the opportunities are limitless and endless. But the the thing that I learned when I was writing Q and on and on was just how absolutely ph- ph- phenomenally well resourced and directed and crucial to uh, Russian. Like political and imperial efforts, the information sphere is like the Russian government for a long time has recognised information as as important a battlefield as land or sea or air, and that there are enormous amounts of resources that go into pushing messages, sharing propaganda. If you want to enter the the mad world of Russian propaganda, it's totally worth. And I, I share a lot of this stuff because it's amazing watching Russian political talk shows. Like in Australia, like Mona El-Tahawi, you know, said a rude word and it was a national scandal. Someone once threw a shoe and it was a big deal. Some university students waved a banner and got thrown out on Q&A and it was like, On Russian talk shows, they literally talk about, justifying genocide and why they should kill people and why they should rain nukes down on people. It is just so violent and crazy and also exists in a universe that has zero relationship to reality. A lot of really good writing appearing recently talking about how the Russian propaganda machine is so absolutely all-encompassing. The part of the problem is that the Russians are high on their own supply and have lost their very sensible disbelief in their own government perpetuated lies so you had lavrov who's the russian foreign minister this week has been running around saying that russia is just going to withdraw a diplomatic presence from all western countries because westerners are just inherently murderous and all westerners want to do is remove russia from the face of the earth and it's like you invaded a sovereign country no one has invaded you. No one. You and I have both been to Russia, met yeah. some really good people, had a fun time. But quite honestly, Ben, I don't think that's a possession that anybody in the West wants the no. uh, landmass of Russia. Do you?
0: No, and it's and it is really it is really fascinating to read up a bit more about the the propaganda piece because they are the Russians. The Russians do come across as, you know, crazy. Like when I, and when I say crazy, I mean, you know, like the the certifiable type. I'm not. This is not a, you know, a, a slander against people with mental health issues. This is a. This is a country that has detached itself from reality. And when we see that in the West, we go, well, that surely. That makes them seem unreasonable. Their kind of constant claims of trying to denazify Eastern Europe by invading yeah, it, Ukraine.
1: That just, you know that democratic country that's run yeah. by the absolutely Jewish Volodymyr Zelensky.
0: Yeah, this sort of you know lack of logic or or any basis in fact or reality, and we go well. Surely people must be getting sick of this in Russia. But you know, some of the stuff I've read in the last couple of days actually says that, as you say, Russians are really getting quite high on this supply. That while we think Ukraine is winning the the propaganda war, the information war, you know, we see Zelensky addressing things like the Sydney Institute and our Parliament, and you know, and we're all supplying Ukraine with support. Russia is basically targeting its own population, and the population's of non-Western countries with this information, and yes, to some degree even America, to try and destabilise the American system and the Republicans in particular with the- um, Well, Kevin McCarthy,
1: who's the leader of the House Republicans, who's like the leader of the opposition in the American system, he came out and said that there would be no blank checks to Ukraine if the Republicans take the majority of the Congress in the midterm elections, Ben.
0: And it it goes to that point, right, that actually in their system for a long time there have been Russian influence operations. We know that. Your book talks about it. Other books have talked about it.
1: And let me tell you, I mean, people know I went undercover in QAnon. I had a number of different – personalities who were infiltrated various groups and I was genuinely shocked. I've got to say, despite all the crazy things I've seen, like the QAnon people who were convinced that um, Planned Parenthood put aborted fetuses in bread to turn everybody into a satanic cannibal, that's legitimately something that I have seen people claim is true on the internet. Yeah, I can see wow. Ben through a video link at the moment. You can't, and I wish you could because the look of just despair on his face is is pretty is pretty classic. But even I was taught, to- and I have written about Russian influence operations and how Russian influence operations seize on conspiracy theorists to just mobilise chaos and disharmony, but in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, by Russia in February, I watched all of these QAnon accounts that I'd been watching for a year flip and turn into pro-Russian accounts overnight. Like yeah. the pipelines of disinformation have been nurtured and built with a full imprimatur of the Russian government, with Russian influence operations for a long time. And, and you can see it on Twitter. You can see the way that they have channeled disinformation, not only through the far right and the, you know, crazy Republicans, but also been quite dis- disgustingly um, for those who have self-recruited to this project to people who would consider themselves on the left and quite right on. And I just, can I just be completely unambiguous? Like left-wing people fundamentally, spiritually as in, and in all other ways believe in solidarity, internationalism and democracy, Right, solidarity, internationalism, democracy—these are these are pretty basic values in in terms of we can get into all kinds Full of left sectarianism. But if you are backing the authoritarian, like non democratic government of Russia in an imperialist war against flawed but certainly democratic Ukraine, you are not in the left. You are out. Goodbye.
0: And let's and let's taking a broader view here too, because it's not just Putin's Russia that is creating the weapons and dropping the weapons on Ukraine and Ukrainian purple. Um, there's reports now that uh, that the drones, the suicide drones, the kamikaze drones that are being used to attack uh Soft targets like power stations and, and children residential
1: and playgrounds, yes,
0: hospitals are being made in Iran. And then, in fact, the Iranian regime has now put people on the ground to help, uh, you know, maintain these vehicles, deploy them properly, uh, train the Russians in how to use them, and to sell more of them to Russia. I mean, this is. This is a regime that you and I have talked about in a previous episode that is itself in the process of suppressing and oppressing its own population.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the protests against the regime in Iran are not going away. An infamous prison, Evin Prison, which typically houses political prisoners, was on fire this week. The the demand for the end of the uh, regime and death to the dictator is being chanted in Iran. Like they have not, they've killed a lot of people. The regime have killed a lot of people. They have not succeeded in suppressing the protests in that country. But there is a school of thought that one of the reasons the Iranians are backing in the Russians is not only because they're just loathsome authoritarians who believe in might as opposed to democracy and suppressing their populations and hierarchicalizing an inequality that they hope will be perpetual. It's not only that they share those values, but the Iranian regime is using the conflict in Ukraine to test these weapons so they can deploy them against their own populations.
0: It's shocking and appalling. And I and I just, you know, have to say I totally agree with you. There there is You know, Putin and Russia is not a revolutionary Soviet Union. That's not the same thing. If you're on the left going, oh, but, you know, Russia is standing up against the imperialist NATO, that's not... The Hi reality everyone, the Cold in. War
1: is over and NATO is made up of democratic countries, countries where they even let women vote. Isn't that amazing?
0: And, you know, I think the the thing that I find really telling about that is that even the Nordic countries uh, that, you know, didn't want to get involved in the Cold War are now wanting to join NATO because times have changed.
1: The Cold War is over. It is over.
0: Politics has evolved. Uh and sadly, in the case of Russia, it has regressed. Uh, it has regressed to back to total autocracy. Look, the situation in Ukraine is obviously very volatile. situation in Russia seems to be increasingly volatile too. We know hundreds of thousands of people have left Russia in an attempt to avoid the draft. We know that winter well,
1: people have left russia to avoid the draft then they managed to draft and there was news this week that the draft is being wound down in russia because it is causing them problems and
0: winter is coming winter, winter is, coming. is coming so we will see what the future brings there look winter is coming in the northern hemisphere i think In future episodes, we're probably going to have some COVID updates from the Northern Hemisphere because I know that some of our listeners are very keenly watching what's going on in the Northern Hemisphere and uh, particularly with new variants of COVID coming out. But, Van, I want us to move on to some good news. Uh, We'll get into all of that next week probably. Some good news that our government – The Government of Victoria, the Government of Tasmania, even possibly a little bit of the Government of New South Wales, although I'm not entirely sure on that part of it, has committed to rewiring Australia and a massive investment in clean, renewable energy.
1: Oh, it's totally amazing. It's just... It's incredible. So finally we're going to get Star of the South, which is the 200 turbine wind development near Gippsland, which is offshore wind. And you and I have spoken um, previously about how these sort of offshore structures actually help wildlife and help rebuild reefs and things, um, which is just amazing, which will also be jobs, jobs, jobsy, jobs, jobs. Um, There's a billion dollars of low-cost loans to fund the redevelopment of Tasmania's Tarelia Hydro Power Station. There's Clean Energy Finance Corporation will be giving concessional loans uh, for interconnectors between Victoria and New South Wales, massive link there. It's like all of these products – Uh, projects, sorry, products that are part of the same renewable infrastructure. And I want to acknowledge the work of Lily D'Ambrosio, who's the Victorian Minister for the Environment, Minister for Climate Action, Minister for Saving the World um, in the Victorian state Labor government. Lily is an absolutely extraordinary activist in this portfolio and the fact that she is a minister has been transformative for Victoria. Mm. We know that Victoria that brought in a renewable energy target at the time that the then federal Liberal government um, was you know abandoning RETS and those things it has massively exceeded all of its targets. Infrastructure has been created you and I talk about the fact that we live in a wind economy like out where we are. In the central highlands, wind turbines everywhere, jobs, employment, clean air, all these things. And it's the the vision, the economic now, the planning and the strategy of people like Lily D'Ambrosio and the people who she has brought to work with her on these projects that is enabling these things to happen. Like it is an absolute coup there are a lot of people who talk about the environment there are people who throw stupid van Gogh paintings for reasons I don't don't fully understand but then there are you know the people who do the work in actually building the infrastructure writing the policy costing the plans working with the communities you know the difficult part the not glamorous not particularly exciting part that actually leads to uh change. So acknowledgement to Lily, and I also want to acknowledge Friends of the Earth uh, in Victoria and Act on Climate, who are our friends, very active in this space as well, who are activists who are on the ball in this area. And it's these kind of collaborations that make these change
0: happen. And and it is a significant change too, because there's in addition to the Kerrang Link, which is that linkage between Victoria and New South Wales, which was put off and put off and put off by the Morrison government uh, and Star of the South, which is obviously a huge investment, there's also the, the, the Marinus Link, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but the the additional linkage uh, of Tasmania to the mainland. And we know there's a huge renewable potential in Tasmania. I mean, we're talking about 1,800 megawatts from Kerrang Link, 1,500 megawatts in the Moranis Link. These are projects that have been ready to go for some time and you know the Commonwealth government stepping up and going, we will provide the loans, the Victorian government, the Tasmanian government, the Commonwealth government taking an equity stake. This is the other big thing that I think is really important about this because we've seen how this has played out in places like Queensland where they've got state owned infrastructure around energy you can make the transitions when you when you take an equity stake when the people own the power then the power serves the people now this is a way of doing that using the new technology using clean energy and kind of giving us an opportunity to restart this process you know of course of course there's going to be challenges we know that you know one of the one of the conversations i was part of recently where they were talking about star of the south is a 200 wind turbine development off the coast of gippsland which is not going to be particularly close to where the current power stations are is going to be difficult to 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 staff and how do we How do we do that? How do we make sure we we have the right grade of steel in this country? There are challenges involved in this, but these are good challenges to have, right? When you've got governments that are committed to doing these projects and you've got communities that want the jobs, that need the energy, you've got industry downstream that goes, you know, we'll take clean energy. We we want clean energy. It's going to be lower cost. We'll take as much of it as you can give us. We'd rather have the challenge of, how do we skill up enough people? How do we make the high-grade steel? How do we get it to where it needs to be? Then the challenge of, well, some boardroom in New York or Paris or London has decided to close our aluminium smelter or our power station or our factory, and now those workers are all out on their ear and we've only got three months to sort out what we're going to do before the entire community collapses. like. This this announcement today, and as you say, Lily D'Ambrósio and Chris Bowen, who's just thrown himself into the portfolio, he's loving it,
1: isn't he? Bowen,
0: he's loving it.
1: Zoots around in his
0: electric car, solving <laughs> problems. And and the thing is, too, he sees it as it is. Yeah, an economic portfolio.
1: Yeah, he sees it as not only an economic portfolio, but an economic community building opportunity. Yeah. like he actually has a framework that goes this does not exist separately from workers rights or community development or you know the the redistribution of opportunity throughout the Australian community and economy
0: it's just a it's just a fantastic shift of mindset and you know we can i think we can often feel like change is so gradual and it's so grinding uh, that we don't actually go Oh, that's a huge step change, right? You know, we talked before about multi-employer bargaining. Yeah, that will be a big step change. It's been a long road and lots of consultation and big business has been, to, you know, part of that process and all the rest of it. For them, they're clearly seeing this is a big change. Well, I think the the announcements today about, you know, the cooperation between two Labor governments, Commonwealth and Victoria two Liberal governments in New South Wales and Tasmania shows that we can make big change happen and it's a great outcome great outcome for the whole country
1: it is awesome
0: yeah so that's really all we have time for today but then we always give a shout out to our supporters these are people who've gone to our Buy Me A Coffee page it's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday they are Chipping in, $20 a month, $10 a month. We have our Buck a Week supporters as well, but our cadre are $20 a month. Our extend the reach are $10 a month. And thanks to their support, we're able to reach more and more people every single week.
1: I just can't wait till we get to a million downloads. We should throw a party. <laughs> All right. Are you ready?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: Karina Barley, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, Shane Horsfall, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona, Evergreen, Beast, Giota at Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Trunk, Veteran, Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Toohey, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herrett, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright at Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at nash 20 billy Billy3McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Matthew Hadley, at Narungaman, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins and Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters A Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, <laughs> I love Marky Mark, at M Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale68, Frank Nihuis, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Paul, Pauline Bate, Helen Tradragon, Damien Marley, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John De at Ange Fennel, Anna Uren at Ross Roskenner888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Karan Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna. At K. love your work. At Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Grever, Someone, Vita W., Tanya George, Nadita Hannam, Maire Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hone, and Gale Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Forsett, Not on Twitter, Sarah Elian and Andrew, Iva Spilett, Andrew Bryan, Peter o. C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum Basher, Katie Ward, At the Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, At Not Sandy B. and Renee McGee. And I forgot to breathe halfway through that.
0: I forgot to read. More and more people are supporting us every single week. If you'd like to support us, do jump on that supporter page. I also want to give a shout out to our good friend, Francis Leach, and the team over at On The Job who have had their 100th episode this week. Do check it out. It's the official Australian Union's podcast, and they have done a list of their top five podcasts that they've done so far. They've only done 100, Van. Look, they're only they do only half as many as us, but we love them with all of our hearts and offer our solidarity to them. I'm sure they'll get a hundred more before they can even blink.
1: I love blinking. <laughs> I love blinking. Never try someone who doesn't blink.
0: Now, next week, of course, will be a budget episode, which I know lots of people are going to be looking forward we'll to. We'll make
1: it interesting, I promise.
0: <laughs> but until... Uh, Then don't forget to check out The Weekend Wrap where I will give you a short rundown of the the news that was happening between now and then. Until then, (laughs) love you, Vanny.
1: I love you too. You're the best. Bye. Bye.